How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. We are so glad that you are here with us today. It's been a while. We released our Nehemiah Leadership Series last year, I guess, in 2017. And if you haven't listened to that, Michael teaches through the book of Nehemiah and talks about biblical leadership principles that you can apply to your daily life, the leadership role you're in, if you're managing folks, if you're not managing folks. Um We got some great feedback from that series, so really encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Today, we are in the studio. We've been working on a new series that will be released shortly about retirement, really, utilizing some of Michael's beloved mentor friend, Prof. Howard Hendricks, a series, The Great, great. that he did on (laughs) retirement. But if you are nowhere near the age of retirement, Still listen, trust me, I've been editing these episodes and I've learned so much and I'm only 33. So You're it, 33? I'm 33 years wow. old. I How know. that happen? That means you're really old. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that reminder. But, man, I didn't even introduce us. I'm Hannah Seymour. I'm sitting here with Michael Easley, of course. Good this is Michael Easley in Context. And we came into the studio today to talk about a particular current event hot topic issue which is gun control now dad you know i am a mom of a newborn i've got a three month old at home i've been trying to work for you full time i also have a book that's coming out in april i am juggling so many things are you whining right now? i'm not whining i'm just saying i'm juggling (laughs) so many things right now that i have no idea what's going on in the world around me. (laughs) My husband comes home and every day I say, so what happened in the news today Uh that I need to know about? Um, So I I know that, of course, gun control has been an issue off and on for a long time. Lots of horrible high school, college, elementary school shootings, shootings in churches, etc. But fill me in because I'm sure there are some other folks that are listening to this episode and they're also thinking, I really don't know what's going on. So why are we talking about gun control today? What's been going on? Well, a young man named Nicholas Cruz uh, went on to a former campus where he was a former student in Florida. And uh, with a number of weapons, he kills 17 uh, people. Uh, during this uh, melee and the Broward County Sheriff's Department response to this, uh, it has turned the country upside down again with the school shooting. Of course. You and I were looking earlier today about the Center for Homicide Research that between 1980 and 2005, there have been 139 shootings or um, on church property, the death toll of about 185 people. Between 2006 and 2015, about 24 church shootings. Uh, and we can break those down about six a year for church property, uh, maybe 2.7 a year. Um, in 2015, CNN remarks that more than 40 people were charged and related to Columbine style plots. And you remember the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999 when uh, these two, uh, per- today we might call them, um, you know, 
YouTube wasn't what it was in those days, but they watched a film over and over and over again and got the idea to go in and shoot up the school. Yep. So Columbine, Sandy Hook, and now most recently this this a school called Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida have become monuments to uh, soft target mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward, Christians are, are rightly disturbed, upset. Uh, what do we do? How do we fix this? Uh, what's our response? And so immediately there are these overreactions yeah. uh, either to, you know, I, I like to think in bell curves. On the one side, we have the far right fringe that uh, no type of regulation, no type of information should ever be required of a free citizen under the Second Amendment. On the far, far left, we have confiscate all weapons. Mm-hmm. So for this conversation today, which I think is so critical for us to think um, not just biblically, which is paramount, but with wisdom. Sure. On how in the world do we address this when the media has has just taken over this argument? Unfortunately, much of what they're talking about is bad information. So we're going to have a conversation with a guy named Michael Mann, who's become a good friend of yours over the years. You've done how many hours of training with Michael? It'd be hard to quantify, but I think the first year, probably over 100. And uh, basically, if Michael taught a course on, uh, well, he did. He taught a course on cleaning a gun. Okay. <laughs> Michael is an extraordinary teacher. I've never met someone who is um, able to repeat things in such a systematic, simple form. He used to drive me crazy, and I've told him this many times, because <laughs> he would say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And then when you're on a gun range and you're shooting a paper target and learning how to sight and uh, how to hold a gun and so forth and so on, how to be safe. He's such a safety hound. Um, and then if, if we're having a little fun, he'll stop and he'll say, he'll say, folks, folks, I know you're having a little fun. I know there's some competition. This is not a game. Mm. This is not a game. You never want to have to do this. Wow. And it's always a recalibration of uh, the men and women he trains for these both uh, church and private organizations that I'm uh, privileged to be part of. Uh, I get to go when they get trained and just you know be a part of the team, so sure. to speak. And I'm always amazed at what a great teacher he is. And there's not a person on that line, internal medicine physician, attorneys, uh, uh, former Navy uh, men and women. I mean, these, these are an interesting ilk of people who are all equally impressed with his knowledge of history, his knowledge of firearms, and not even just firearms, but how to protect people and how to keep the threat from ever coming into the building, which, as we're going to hear in our discussion, a large part of what Michael's going to talk about is this isn't about arming or taking away guns. It's about something different. That's good. Well, after your conversation with Michael Mann, you are going to give us a look at a biblical defense for the right to keep and bear arms. Well, let's just call it a theology defense, and let's let's put that in pencil and say this is a Michael Easley theology of defense. Okay. Okay. And there, and I know already, and I welcome it. We're going to have critics. We're going to have people that are going to be angry on both sides of the debate. But I'm going to marshal through what I think is a biblical overview of why, if a person wanted to. They could choose to learn how to uh, keep a weapon, how to protect their family, to protect others. Uh, And as Michael and I will certainly talk about, uh, this is where it gets personal. Are you willing to stand by if an active shooter came into a soft target environment, meaning in my former life as a pastor, if someone with a rifle 
with guns came into a Christian school or a Christian day uh, center, mm -hmm. are you willing to stand by and do nothing to call 911 and, and wait for a response to come to a place they don't know where they are? Or you have the courage to go in there and say, no, I'm going to try my best to stop them from killing children and moms and dads. And I think most people listening to this and most of my friends are saying, absolutely. Yeah, I'd run into danger. Yeah. Now, we might freeze. We might be afraid. Sure. We might run the fear, flight, fight, flight thing. But with training, uh, I think many people would say, I'd be uh, just like we saw in Broward County, the coaches that got in front of gunfire to save children. There are a lot of people. I would do something to stop mm. this uh, uh, perpetrator's evil. So my hope is that well, no matter where you are on the gun debate, you'll ask yourself the question, are you willing to stop some evil person from killing women, children, unarmed citizens? Mm. Uh, I would hope you would be. Yeah. To hide behind the platitude of I'm going to trust God, I'm going to pray, I'm going to trust police, fine, if you want to do that. I will err on the side of no. I would hopefully have the courage and the strength to engage, to run down a hallway, and to try and stop someone who is killing innocent people. Well, let's start with your conversation with Michael Mann, and then we will hear Michael Easley's theology of defense. <laughs> I'm joined in the studio with Michael Mann. Michael, you started out in uh, Marine Corps? Yes, sir. And then you worked in law enforcement how many years? Uh, about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Mm -hmm. You ended up in a SWAT team? Yes, so I spent uh, time in uniform answering calls like most police officers start off doing. And then I was uh, a special weapons and tactics guy. And then I ended my uh, short law enforcement career uh, in intelligence, so conducting surveillance and doing some uh, – personal protection work for like politicians, local politicians. And so, uh, and went back to uniform for a short time and then left law enforcement and went into government work. Now we won't talk about specific <clears throat> companies you've worked for, Yes, but you've worked for some global companies, mm -hmm. uh, guarding nuclear sites, guarding intelligence, guarding information. Uh, give our folks a little understanding of some of the things you've done so they know where your background, uh, yep. where, your, where your expertise comes from. Yep. So I, I left uh, civilian law enforcement and uh, went to work for uh, the U.S. Department of Energy as a full-time special response or like a SWAT person uh, at a large complex uh, in Tennessee, a weapons complex. Um, I picked up some parallel duties and learned how to conduct vulnerability assessments for those facilities. Uh, left there after six years as a commander, so I was in charge of knowing the physical protection of all the stuff that was in that uh, government facility, but also uh, was part of a team that identified system weaknesses and, uh, and uh, led some efforts to improve upon those weaknesses. Um, left there after going back to graduate school. And uh, started designing anti-terrorism and physical protection programs. For and this is about what year when you're this doing 2008, this? 2008. Okay. Yep. Uh, for commercial nuclear sites and chemical sites. Um, and and for the uninformed, you have to guard these massive areas, these plants. I mean, they have fencing. Mm -hmm. They have some cameras. Yep. But that ain't enough, is it? No, it's not. And so, yeah, so part of the design of a physical protection system for these high-risk sites is obviously people with weapons. People that are highly trained, people that uh, uh, that uh, are vetted. Um, you know, most of them are younger folks, and uh, so they have everything from a handgun up to 
depending on the site, they could have crew server weapons. So they could have, they could have rifles, they could have machine guns, they could have explosives. So it depends on the, the uh, nuclear assets that you're protecting. So, yes, a, a wide array of, uh, of physical protection measures to ensure that our enemies or someone else doesn't try to come in and take those, those assets. Because you could have a, uh, an individual who had some uh, Internet-accessed information. Yes, and he could uh, work, worm his way into a nuclear or chemical storage facility, and he could devastate a community. Yes, yes, uh, and yes, and and those and we have some vulnerabilities, and we have some. Uh, there's some opportunities here to to you know in this country to to firm some of that stuff up. And so, it's yeah. important, for, I think, for for all of us to remind ourselves whether it's a, a electrical grid, uh, nuclear waste grids. I mean, all kinds of things, trans, transit. Uh, that a lot of this goes on uh, behind the consumer eye. They're not aware Correct. of what's going on to keep them safe 24-7 when they drive on the freeway, when they drive to Boston Harbor or any other, you know, Santa Barbara, where there's freight docks coming in and out. There are vulnerabilities everywhere. Yes, yes. Which is why you like to stay home. Exactly. <laughs> Don't go to the mall. Just go to work, come back, lock your door. Now, I want to get your take on some of the Second Amendment uh, how how it was framed and perhaps how we need to understand it today. Yep. So I think uh, and you know not bashing anybody, but yeah, I think there's a, just a misunderstanding. We're so blessed in this country and we have so much stuff. We forget about how we got all this stuff, not just from the good Lord, but the people that were involved. You know, almost 300 years ago for us to have what we have today. So I think there's a big misunderstanding about, especially now with all the shootings. And I know we're we're going to talk about that, but. I think to understand where this issue with guns and the Second Amendment and the right to bear and keep arms, where this comes from, we have to understand two things. Number one, we have to understand the history of of when the country was being formed, when the colonists were on site, and when England ruled the colonists, what it looked like at that time. So we're talking about about late 1760s to the War of Independence until the American Revolution. So First of all, to understand the Second Amendment, understand the history of why it's there. So uh, what was going on at the time was we had these colonists, and they didn't want to uh, be under this tyrannical rule of England. And uh, they didn't like it, right? And they owned guns. And actually, that was a right. It was a right for them to own guns. And as they started to rebel against this uh, government, against England, England didn't like it. And so they sent very specific people uh, to rule over the colonists, specifically some folks like General Gage, who who was a military governor in uh, in the Bay of Massachusetts at the time, and uh, so right before the War of Independence, he started doing very specific things because he feared these colonists who were, for the majority, the majority of them they were believers, they were Christians, um, they were uh, pioneers, right. They lived in the wilderness. They all didn't live in a city. So a lot of them owned guns, and they were good. They were good with them. They had to be to live. And so as they started to rebel against this government, because these folks had guns and they were good with those weapons, England feared those folks. And so England put some very uh, strict laws in place to try to uh, suppress that. So uh, everything from punishing these folks to uh, to allowing soldiers to abuse them, they were forced to uh, quarter uh, soldiers in their houses, uh, to uh, once they really started to rebel, what Gage did was he actually, and we, we're seeing this today from the left, he actually tried to uh, 
cut off the supply of ammunition, and at that point it was gunpowder, right? And, of course, the steel to make the projectiles. And so all this led up to rebellions, which led to massacres, which finally led to the War of Independence. And so what we have to understand is what happened before, what the background of why there is a Second Amendment. That is, we had people that were legally armed. They uh, used those arms and were prepared to use those arms not only in self-defense against people in the wilderness that would harm them and to also obviously get food, but also against governments that tried to suppress them, right? And so uh, that's the background. And then now let's talk about what happened after the Constitution. Why is there a Second Amendment? Why is there a First Amendment all the way to the Tenth Amendment? Why is it when we, when we had this Constitution that we, that we decided to accept as a country, why would there have to be a Bill of Rights? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why there would have to be a Bill of Rights is because some other smart people got together and said, hey— we don't believe this Constitution is going to, going to afford enough individual rights for the people. We still believe the government may be too big, and we don't want the people to be suppressed. And so folks got together, and they amended it, and they said, hey, we want to make sure that there's freedom for religion, right, so you can worship. We want to make sure that there's freedom of speech. We want to make sure that the government can't come in and just can't seize you or your property. And the most important, what we're talking about today, we want to ensure that the people— just like before this great country was formed, have the right to not only defend themselves against a tyrannical government, but also to defend themselves against people that want to harm them, which, by the way, goes all the way back, as you know better than I do, to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's the background of the Second Amendment, what it's about, right? It is about our ability to protect ourselves, right? And today, that's to protect ourselves against people that want to do harm to us. And so a lot of people forget or they just don't know because I don't think they teach this anymore, not in school, not, not in high school or junior high school, what the, fa- what the founding fathers believed that our rights were, what all this was about, and why even after the Constitution was implemented, why we had to go back and have amendments, specifically the Second Amendment. I think people just yeah. don't know. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned the, the uh, right to quartered, which is the Third Amendment. Yes. That uh, <laughs> you couldn't be forced— to take, uh, in our terms, a terrorist yes. and let him live in your house. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, we do forget our history, or we don't know our history. So when we hear the opposition to uh, the Second Amendment, when we hear them say things like, well, in, in the 1700s, 1800s, the reason we had weapons was for what you articulated, that doesn't apply today because we have a police force. We have uh, c- civilian supports. We have 911. We have all these other things built in. We have security. We have TSA, you know, whatever. And, and that would be their argument. What yeah. would you say to them? So I would say that, yes, we have resources today that are, are designed to do certain things, but actually the government, which I think people don't know this either, because we have a constitution, because we have these amendments, it is our responsibility to protect ourselves. That's, that's the point of the Second Amendment, which actually I believe there are some on the other side that do understand it and they just don't like it. And there are a lot on the other side also that I think if we're talking about on the left, right, mm-hmm. there are also those that really don't understand it. So there's the don't li- there are those that don't like it, like they didn't like it in the, you know, the 18th century, right? And then there are those that probably don't understand why we have it, right? They didn't grow up around it. They didn't hear it. And so here's what I would say about that. Number one, again, and this was, this was decided by the Supreme Court, I think, in uh, 2008, uh, District, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, where uh, the Supreme Court came back, and, of course, it was five to four. It was very close, but said, hey, yes, this is a right. This is an individual right for people in the United States of America to have weapons, to, to own guns. And so 
First of all, it is an individual right that has been upheld. And again, going back to what we talked about five minutes ago, the history of why we had the amendment or the history of the people and what happened when we uh, when an oppressive government comes in or people want to harm us. And, of course, why we had to have amendments to the, to the Constitution to understand that, hey, maybe what this Constitution talked about, it didn't provide enough for us to protect us. On the other side of this, it is our responsibility to protect ourselves. When we talk about police department, you talk about police departments specifically, most people don't understand this. It is not the rule. There's not any kind of constitutional requirement today for a civilian police department to protect us from personal violence. People don't understand that. So when we're talking about the uh, the Florida school, the Broward County Sheriff's Department there, yes, um, you could argue that those law enforcement guys had no obligation mm-hmm. to run into that school and take on any uh, shooter. No, no, I will tell you, it's not. That's why we have a constitution. <laughs> that's part of why we have these amendments. That is the that is our responsibility to protect ourselves, the people we love, the people we care about, our buildings. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, that somebody shouldn't have went in, right? And I wasn't there, so I won't second-guess that. But no, there is not any requirement for a civilian law enforcement officer to protect any of us from personal violence. The only people that they have to protect are the folks that they have a special, that the government has a special relationship with. That was upheld in the Supreme Court, I think, in 1989, 1990. It's been upheld several times since then. And so... So uh, an elected official, an appointed official, a judge? Uh, no, very specifically, people that are in the custody of the state. So let's talk about inmates. We're talking about people that have been, for whatever reason, for maybe some sort of a, a mental issue that are under the custody because they're harmed to themselves or someone else. And then children who are orphans or who do not have families. Those people that are in the custody of the state have to be protected by the state. You and I, there's no requirement for the state to protect us, not not the way that we're thinking about it. When we think about calling 911, the police are going to show up, and they're there to protect and serve. No, that's not the case because of our Constitution, and it's great. So every police car that has protect and serve on there, it's not that's, true. that's an that's a, uh, advertising? That's that's it. PR? Yeah, and of course, when you think about it, oh, it's like it's a government service trying to advertise for itself. We will do this for you. No, wait a second, Right. Different than any other country or other any other government in the world today, we don't have to do that because we have this Constitution and these amendments, right? So I think there's just a misunderstanding of that, right? And, and the idea that and this gets into we've been we have so much stuff, we just assume that we're going to pick up the phone and call somebody, and somebody's going to come do our job for us. Nine one one response time. Anywhere from nine to seventeen minutes, depending on where you're at, right? So let's go on the short end. In nine minutes, mm-hmm. what can happen? Right, so let's just so yeah, let's dive into that really quickly. Let's talk about these active shooter incidents, something that, as you know, that I provide for for large companies and for smaller companies. And so, uh, on the average, uh, the suspect, these active shooters, are on target anywhere from about two to twelve minutes, right? Depending on how much they know about the target, you know, what they've got, whatever. Uh, when you look at these case studies, there's normally or usually there's some sort of a delay of communication to the persons that need the police in this situation or they're going to call the police and the police get notified, right? Like in Sandy Hook, there was a five-minute delay for whatever reason. There's a lot going on, right? So these people are probably trying to hide. So if they're on site anywhere from about two to 12 minutes, there's a delay, let's say, of two and a half to five minutes before the police get notified and then there's a response, and then the police have to get there, right? Most of the time, by the time, and this is true statistically, statistically, by the time the police do get there, the situation's over because the person that's inside the school with a gun is in control of the situation no matter what, right? Not, and, and not to uh, forget, again, 
you know this better than anyone, but they don't know the school they're going to. No, don't they know. They don't know the layout of the church. No. Uh, they don't know you know where the corridors are, where no. the, the soft target areas are. No. So they're, even if their response time is incredibly quick, they're walking into a blind environment. Yes. Sandy Hook, perfect example. Adam Lance enters the school at 930, uh, starts shooting his way into the school. About 935, the first person calls. The first notification to 911 is is uh, is broadcasted or is sent to uh, Newtown Police Department. 936 Newtown Police Department dispatches Connecticut State Police and the Newtown Police Department to get to the scene because they say there's an active shooter on site. About 939, so three minutes after that first call, because, you know, uh, Newtown's like smaller than Nolensville. It's a pretty small community, right? And so about 939, the first three police officers show up, right? 939. As they show up, they report hearing gunshots inside the school. They hear Adam Lanza inside the school shooting. They do not enter the building until almost 945. All right? So, yes, they show up. They're not soldiers. These are not young Marines with Eagle Globe and Anchor tattoos on the back. They're in Krav Maga class three times a week. They're out running 30 miles. They are preparing for this every day. Police officers are just civilian guys, no different than you and me. Right? They went through some training that taught them how to keep them out of jail, and the training is not specifically designed to be a soldier. And again, I think our population doesn't understand the average policeman or woman does not get that much training. No, no, not in not in the protection or not in the use of firearms, not in self defense. The majority, about eighty six percent of their training, is taught about is is really the focus of, to keep them out of trouble, to understand criminal and constitutional law, to understand civil law, to understand. Uh, uh, like medical response, to learn how to do paperwork, to work a traffic accident, all the things that they're going to do 99% of the time because that stuff that we're talking about now actually doesn't really happen that much. We can talk about that, right, but right. it doesn't happen that much. And so because of that, and because they're not soldiers, and they're not designed to protect, they're designed to be reactive. Let me say this again, because of our Constitution, right, <laughs> because we have the ability to protect ourselves, they're not, it's not designed that way, and people just don't realize it. I've shared this story before uh, with you. I took a class many years ago um, offered by the uh, Williams County Sheriff's Department, and um, it was it was just on consumer uh, using a weapon, what your rights were. They brought a, a DA in, a deputy DA. And uh, he was a fascinating guy because first he, he asked us, how many of you are willing to uh, take a life to defend a life? And he gave us scenarios, a woman being raped, a, a woman with a knife at her throat, uh, a gunman who walked into a store and was shooting at a clerk. Would you be willing to take a life? And, of course, we're all kind of sheepishly starting to raise our hands like, uh, is this a trick question? And then he said, why are you taking this class then? And I'll never forget his point. He went on to say, I wish every, uh, this was Williamson County, every Williamson County resident would take this class. And his comment to us was, 911 is nine minutes too late. That's right. But the other side of this argument, they don't hear that. They don't care about that. And is, is it because it's exceptional? It only, happen, it only happens rarely, so we're not worried about 911? I, I, don't, I don't think it's that we're not worried about it, but this, is, this doesn't happen a lot, right? Uh, so if you go back, you look at st- uh, statistics, and anybody that listens to this can look this up. For, so 2000, 2013, 160 active shooter in- these incidents in the United States of America. A uh, majority of them happened in co- places of, of like business, like commerce. And then the next, uh, the next biggest target was schools, right? And so let's look at just very quickly, we talk about the numbers. So from 
uh, from 2000, 2013, I think there were 39, 38 or 39 schools that were targeted for these attacks, right? Well, there in the United States of America, there are 32,000 private schools, over 100,000 public schools, and over 7,000 universities. We're talking about 140,000 locations, right? So in 13 years out of those 140,000 locations, there were 30-something incidents where these people came into these, these buildings to do this. I'm not saying that's acceptable. I'm just saying that it doesn't happen as much as we think it does, right? So it's just this is exacerbated. And, again, I'm not taking away of the, the impact and consequence of this. I'm just saying this is something that doesn't happen as often as we think it does. Right. But the emotional response to 17 children being killed in a soft target environment is we, we all go crazy. It's like, what can we do? Absolutely. So Absolutely. what can we do? All right. So uh, right now there's a big debate, both sides, right? And, and there is room in the middle for everybody, right? So uh, after this happened two weeks ago, I don't pay attention to these because they're always the same. Uh, just very quickly, uh, so I just looked at some stats last night. Uh, 2000, March 2001 to December 2013, uh, 36 attacks in schools over that span of time. Uh, out of those 36 attacks, 25 of those attackers were either students or former students, five were staff members, six were true outsiders. They really didn't have anything to do with the school. Over 80% of these attackers are insiders. They're students, former students, or staff members, which means, obviously, there's and, and it, even if it's an outsider, there are indicators, and if you, as you start going through the case studies with what information's out there, and this is true for any adversary, political assassins, terrorists, school shooters, whatever. Did, this isn't their first rodeo. No, this is their first yeah, time. They're yeah. going to plan it, they're and they're going to talk about it. And, yeah, they're not going to directly threaten the target, but they do. there's something called leakage, which is a communication about something they could potentially do, whether that's on social media or some other outlet. And so there's always information out there. But as these folks go through what we call a path to intended violence or the adversary path, as they go down that path, there's going to be some indicators, specifically with these school shooters, that something's going to happen. They talked about that two weeks ago in Florida. It's every case. The majority of these are insiders, students, former students. They talk about it with somebody, and every time after the fact, after this has happened, students, teachers all come forward and say, yep. In fact, hours after the school shooting, what did students say? We knew it was going to be him. Why? Because they heard him talk about it on social media, right? Mm -hmm. So our responsibility, right? So, um, so yeah, it's, again, we can't afford the impact of the consequence, but there's room in the middle. So on the far left, we say, take the guns. On the far right, we say, arm teachers. Here's what I would say. In no time, as a threat assessment uh, you know, physical security guy that designs programs from everybody, every, from everything from nuclear sites, churches, private Christian schools, to some of the most popular companies in the world, all right? I'll say this. There's no physical security measure that we can prove that can truly prevent a shooting, okay? So, but then again, we, we I, I don't believe that we should take guns. On the other side of that, we've talked about, so let's talk about this other side of arming teachers, I have put two armed programs in at two private schools in Williamson County. I will say this. If an insider wanted to go to those schools today and they wanted to get in undetected, they could do that even with those armed responders in the school and there would still be a shooting. They would still be able to delay before those responders could get there. So before we arm up teachers, we probably need to look at the risk of that. What does that look like? Utah does that. And in 2015, the last time I was in Utah, I was actually putting in developing a chemical security program for a large chemical site for a company I work for. 
a Utah teacher in a public school, not very far from the city where I was working, had a negligent discharge in the bathroom with, their con- with her concealed carry firearm. And so that stuff happens. So before we arm up teachers, let's look at what the risk is and what the standard's going to be, and is that really possible? But again, before we start taking everybody's guns, what's there in the middle? And here's one thing that we can look at, and that is, okay, in these school shootings, if over 80% of these folks are insiders and that information is always put out there somewhere, then what can we do to prevent this? Not take the guns, not arm up the teachers, not put metal detectors and have your your fifth-grade daughter have to stand outside for an hour to try to get through a metal detector because that's something else people don't understand. Physical security measures take a lot of work, and they're expensive. And unless you use them correctly, it's not going to work. And I would tell you to try to put metal detectors and armed teachers and all these things in the schools today that I, I don't think I would want to see that. I, I just don't. And so what's kind of in the middle? Well, one thing in the middle is, hey, uh, in states like Virginia and Washington State are already doing this. Let's put threat assessment programs in the schools. I teach threat assessment programs. So, so give us a primer for those that yeah. have never heard of yeah. threat assessment. Yeah, so uh, U.S. Secret Service, just to give you an idea where this came from. The U.S. Secret Service designed this for uh, educational facilities several years ago. So threat assessment program is, so these school shooters. You hear information or a student hears information that's reported to an administration. The administration then starts to conduct an investigation of that potential threat, of what that communication was. That student, that person's called in. The, the staff is trained very specifically on questions to ask, and before it happens, they ask the question, is this a transient threat or is this or substantive? What is this? Is this really a threat or it's not? This is just Johnny who was mad, and when he said, I'm going to come in here and get those guys, he didn't mean he was going to bring a rifle in here and get them. What he meant was on the playground tomorrow, he was going to, you know, he was going to tackle them or whatever, right? And so there are very specific ways. This is, think about this. When's the last time you saw the Secret Service that you can remember draw a pistol ever? Yeah, 1980, Reagan. 81 Reagan, right? right? Right. You haven't seen that After since. After the fact, yeah. After the fact, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You haven't seen that since yeah. because they do these very detailed threat assessments and they know information about people before the president even gets there. Secret Service gave this to school systems years ago. It's just a lot of school systems don't use them, right? And so one 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 kind of piece that we could use and that's kind of meets in the middle and, and probably would make everybody happy are preventative measures, and one would be when we hear this information, we investigate it. And guess whose responsibility that is? It's the school's responsibility. Now, the police can be involved in it. The school resource officer, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, the school nurse, part of the administration. But those those procedures already exist. And when you look at the statistics of who the actual shooters are and what happens before, which, which again, most of the shooters are going to be students, former students or staff members, and they always communicate the threat before, not directly to exactly who they're going to go after, but to someone and somebody always knows about it, there's a program that can be put in place to do that. So uh, if it was uh, Sandy Hook or the Broward County School and they they had the threat assessment in place and these young men were uh, buying weapons, putting pictures on social media, saying all things off the cuff, okay, now you know that, you call the, the individual in, what can you do? Yep, so, uh, so obviously there's a vehicle put in place so students, teachers and all that can report that to this team. So as, now here's what's not going to happen. In, every, in all these case studies, and I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not, the, I'm not the guy that developed this threat assessment program, I'm not a secret service agent that, that specializes in threat assessments, but that person, if that person does make a threat, so you've got a 16-year-old kid that made a threat to somebody, you've heard it, you call that person and talk to them. 
when you go to call that person in, they're not going to go to their car. It's, it's shown this doesn't happen. They don't go to the car, get a hand grenade, or are going to come in and shoot the people they are going to talk to them. They're asked very specifically, hey, what did you mean by this? And there's a process that the administration goes through, and they determine whether or not that was an actual threat or is it, was it just somebody talking, right? Here's what the shooter doesn't want. If they actually intend to commit intended violence, they don't want to be caught, right? And so just practicing a questioning attitude, which is a deterrence, right, my ability to show the adversary that maybe our physical protection system is too tough to defeat – just asking those questions can deter the adversary or possibly find out that this person meant it, right? Call the police or have the police there. And at that point, if we determine that it is an, ap- an actual threat, then that person's taken into custody, he surrendered to law enforcement, whatever. And then at that point, the law enforcement organizations take over, and this is prevented before it even started. Does that make sense? Well, and, and you've even instilled this in the classes I've sat under you that prevention is the is the, is the greatest strength yes, you have. Yes. Stop the threat for whatever gets in the yes, building. Yes. You got to have your your doors and windows and lighting systems, and you got to have eyes on things. And it's just common sense. But we do run to the let's arm all the teachers. Let's have an active shooter program. Let's go through all this training and uh, to sustain that level of training. Not not even the time and money, just the motivation. Right for people to want to stay trained, you're gonna you're gonna train for a marathon but never run one. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I put in. You know, you can read this now and then. Specifically, what happened two weeks ago in Florida. It, so let's talk about the people that carry guns all the time. So obviously, our police officers need handguns. They need shotguns. They have now. They have carbines or rifles. They need those to protect themselves. Correct. If we really start to look at the ability and training, and this is not every police officer, right? But the majority, because they're just most of them are just normal guys. They don't do a lot of the stuff. When you start looking at U.S. Department of Justice statistics and you talk about when police officers get into gunfights, average hit ratio from 15 feet, let me say that again, feet, not yards, and in, in a police gunfight from the police side is about 38%. Hit ratio 15 feet and in for the bad guys, 68%. Interesting. Right? As I start to add feet, that that, <laughs> that ratios, hit ratio yeah. gets smaller. So. If our police, and I'm not saying every police officer, because I was just the opposite. I was a guy that practiced all the time and spent a lot of my own money to do this stuff, which there are police officers out there that do that, but that's not the majority of them. If our police that are given weapons, and and it's a stressful situation to be in that kind of a, right, to be put into that. So I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying if that's what the average is, if that's the average success rate for a police officer in a shooting, if we arm a teacher, right, this is a person who went to school to be an educator, a teacher, right? Uh, maybe they're anywhere from 23 to whatever. This is not what they really signed up to do, and all of a sudden this idea comes out and they think it's neat. That neatness, that, that wears off in about the first two weeks, right? And how are they going to respond? If, that's not, if we train a police officer from anywhere from 12 to 24 weeks at a police academy, and then they go through periodic training throughout their years of service, and they're not really good at this, right? Because I can go back to all these school shootings to show you most of the time the police don't get there in time. And when they do, if they do get there and they do get inside to engage the adversary, over 50% of the time they take casualties. So if this is their success rate, and it's not their fault, it is not their fault, what's the success rate of a teacher who's gone to school to be an educator and now we give them a handgun, what's that success rate going to really look like? 
And if they're not doing all the other things that we talked about, preventative measures, what good does it do anyway? But a number of these school shootings where school resource officers are inside the school. Because the student's the shooter, he's an insider, he understands the physical protection system, he knows the system weaknesses, he knows what he can do and what he can get away with and what he can't, right? So what's the success rate going to be for a teacher to do this? And I'm not saying it not to do it. I've done it for two private schools, right? But there's still vulnerabilities associated with it. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's change gears a little bit and talk about some, some words that are always flashpoints. NRA. NRA is, uh, is worshipped by the far right, vilified by the far left. Talk about the NRA. All right. So um, uh, here's what I would say uh, about the NRA. A very strong lobby for gun owners. I mean, for a gun, if you're a gun owner, you believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, I I am a proponent of, this, of the NRA. Um, I don't always agree with some of the things that they say. I don't agree with some of the, the ways that they present things. And yes, uh, it does seem when you uh, it, it does appear that when you hear them talk, that they are completely against uh, coming to the middle, right? Any, any form of regulation, a, any for anything at all. However, I would say they understand the Second Amendment and. This can be a slippery slope, right? This, this can be very slippery. If we go back, and you know this better than I do, if we go back to places that used to could have guns, like England, like the U.K., right? There was a time when there was gun ownership, right? And then now there's a time that there's not, right? And so there was one right that was you given up. whistle. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's not run, hide, fight. It's run, hide, and call. Seriously. You're right, right. Yes, it is, right? So... So <laughs> they, they gave up their rights to own guns. Now what rights are they giving up? Specifically, the rights of religion, the rights of free speech. Go into the streets in Europe right now, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and see what happens. So if we, so, here's the NRA stance on this, uh, and I'm not speaking for them. This is what I'm guessing. If they give up, one, if they give up this little, if they give up an inch, then they're going to want to have to. Then someone else is the going to want to give them up. Camel's nose under the tent. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay, talk about AR because everybody <laughs> assault rifle. I mean, we hear all these different uh, definitions of an AR. Give us the uh, history and the labeling of the AR. Yeah. So AR stands for Armalite rifle. So, so the background of the uh, so Armalite was a weapons manufacturer, and uh, um, uh, it, it, let's go back to the ammunition first. So just okay. real quick. So let's talk about the, because this is always the next thing to talk about. So just real quickly for whoever's going to listen, 223. 223 Remington, which is the ammunition that, that goes in and that you would load into an, an AR-15, uh, uh, specifically was designed in 1963 by Remington as a varmint round. So anything from a... Which, by the way, a lot of it is labeled, labeled varmint yes, it is and varmint right. guns. Yes, yeah. yes. So anything from a prairie dog to a coyote. Right. Okay. And then in the mid-1960s, uh, the Department of Defense came out, and they uh, started wanting to improve on, uh, on an older weapon system. And so, uh, uh, so we get into this AR. So AR stands for Armalite Rifle. And so this Armalite Rifle, this AR, uh, initially there was a design to uh, submit to the Department of Defense to, uh, to give our soldiers and our Marines uh, a more modern weapon than what we had used in the 50s and early 60s, right? The first rifle that came out was known as an AR-10, and that was a, it looked like an AR-15, so the structure looked the same, but it fired 7.62 by 51 caliber rounds, like a 308, so very heavy round, very heavy magazine, and because it was so big, um, uh, it just wasn't a very popular rifle. 
the U.S. military ended up adopting, I think, later on the M14. And so uh, 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 mid-late 1960s, uh, Armalite developed the AR-15, right? And, uh, and so that was a lighter weight rifle. Uh, fire the two two three or specifically you know the five 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 six uh, caliber round, uh, magazine fed, gas operated, very easy to use. And then of course the really the civilian version of that is this AR. So it's not assault rifle. It's just the AR stands for the initial manufacturer of that specific weapon. So uh, for like 1911 fans, yes. 1911 is made by a host of companies, Yes. but the 1911 is a platform. Yes, correct. So AR is a platform of a weapon made by all kinds of manufacturers yes. with different uh, whistles and bells. Yes. Okay, let's talk about high-capacity magazines. Yep. All right. Specifically with rifles, is that what we're going to talk about? All right, so uh, so big debate now about this ammo thing, right? So let's restrict uh, the number of rounds that go into a magazine. Let's say it's not 30, but it's 10. Um, so the idea behind this, and this is, you know, we've talked about this before. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I have five rounds. It doesn't matter if I have 10 rounds. It doesn't matter if I have two rounds. Someone on the intent to commit this horrible violence against anyone doesn't matter how many rounds they have, they're just going to carry more magazines, right? Um, so I think with the high-capacity magazines, for whatever reason, because I, I don't think they know any better, they specifically want to pick on the AR. But there are a number of other guns out there, rifles very specifically, that shoot the same caliber round. You can get the same number, uh, the magazines that keep the same number of rounds inside the magazine. They would give you that 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 same amount of ammunition in, you know, in in one load mm-hmm. uh, based on what the magazine looked like. So I think there's, it's not necessarily, it's just that it's 30 rounds. It's just they just don't like the AR specifically because there are other guns that have 30 round magazines, specifically like the mini 14, other variances of, of these, of these so-called assault rifles. And so, and a host of other weapons that have yes, large magazines. Yes. Uh, uh, um. What's the most popular one I've seen in the gangster movies? The right, the the nine millimeter uh, Uzi's, oh, the, yeah, the Uzi's, Uzi's Tech Nine, yeah, yeah, yeah. AK, AK, yeah. Uh, so there's all kinds of them out there, but the AR is the star of these shooters. Yes, because the last three, I guess the last three shooters in schools have used ARs, and it's Columbine it, use ARs. Uh, no, uh, Columbine didn't have ARs. They had a pistol, and then they had uh, actually, I think they, I have, I have to go back and look at notes, but I think they had something. Actually, they had something crappy, like a tech, some kind of a smaller kind of carbine pistol. No, yeah. not an AR. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, other things that you hear and I hear in the media that it's like this is not just bad vocabulary; they're misusing yeah. information. Anything come to mind that you hear? You hear? And I know you get upset about terminology sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So uh, you know, clips. It's not a clip. Obviously, it's a magazine. Uh, we've talked about assault rifles already. When they uh, when they say it's a military weapon. Yeah. So all right, specifically military weapons. So there are very there are standards for military weapons. So an AR-15 is not a military weapon. All right. So uh, the, the very specific thing that takes the military out of the AR is the ability to how it can fire. So an AR-15 fires a semi-automatic round. 
which and, and explain that explain system. that for people. So yep. we talk about automatic, semi-automatic, double yep. action, single action. Yep. Know. So military is going to be select fire, which means I can fire semi-automatic, or I could fire some sort of three-round burst of fully automatic. So semi-automatic. Every time I pull the trigger, a yep. round is deployed. Yep. So if you look if you look at the magazine, there's 30 rounds in it. What is you know whatever. It's only supposed to load 28. 28. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you listened to class. Yeah. So you look, below that in the magazine well, run the bolt, there's a round in the chamber. I take that lever, that's a liquid lever on the left side of the lower receiver off safe. I pull the trigger. One round is going to fire out of the barrel through the muzzle of that rifle. What's going to happen is it's a gas system. That gas is going to blow that, that, uh, that system back, right, or that bolt back. And when that happens... Right, another round is going to spent be extracted. Goes out. Yep, spent cartridge goes out. Another round will be extracted or fed up into the chamber of the rifle. That bolt has to go forward and it loads that second round. You have to pull the trigger, and that process continues until you run out of ammunition. Yep. Full automatic. Yep, fully automatic means that in, in most of these. Uh, so when we think about that, we think of like machine guns machine or whatever. Gun. Uh, but yes, ever when you pull the trigger until my trigger finger comes off and run out of ammunition, rounds are going to continue to go out of that barrel. And, and fully automatic muscle. weapons are illegal. Yes, to own. yes, yes. So you know, as a as a Marine Corps veteran who defended the rights of the American people and for this great country, as a civilian law enforcement officer, a veteran of civilian law enforcement, from someone who you know supervise the physical protection of critical infrastructure all over our country. Today, I cannot own a fully automatic weapon. I cannot do that. So, yeah, I can own semi-automatic weapons, but even with my background, I cannot own a military-style weapon. I can't do that. But they're on the street. They are, right? So when we, so gun laws aren't mm-hmm. keeping... Yes, gun laws don't necessarily, right? They're not going to deter or prevent the bad element from getting the guns. It's just not. I asked Bob McEwen about this when we, we don't, for whatever reason, don't like to talk about it, but Chicago was, what, 613 mm-hmm. mur- uh, people killed? 600 plus, yeah. Uh, in 2017, I think it was the, the highest number ever, and that's gone down a little bit year-to-date so far. We pray it continues that way. Highest gun uh, regulations, L.A., New York, uh, uh, Chicago, and yet we don't talk about those number of deaths over against I mean, obviously, the soft targets of a school or a church or a movie theater, it's, it's horrific, it's horrible, it's egregious. I was just going to school. I was just going on a date with my wife to see a film. This shouldn't happen in those environments. But yet we are unable to deal with individuals with weapons at such a high rate. It, it is correct. If you uh, remove the serial number, it's a felony, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the guns they confiscate in Chicago don't have serial numbers on them. That's right. But we don't prosecute. Yep. Because? Because now our system's overrun, right? It's already overrun. We don't prosecute. It takes time. A lot of times we don't catch the we don't catch the adversary. We don't catch the criminal, right? Or they've been in the system so much. It's it, it, there's just a lot to. I mean, just a lot all the way around. So uh, overcrowded prisons. We don't catch them. Um, they can't hold them for the length amount of time. Uh, there's no answer to. So we put them in prison for ten years. The first time they get out, they do it again. We put them back. They come back out. It's just a it's just a cycle that repeats itself, right? So should we start? Should the system be different? What should we start doing about that? Right. So right now, it doesn't seem like specifically in places like Los Angeles, Chicago, the bigger cities where there is heavy gun regulation, but it doesn't seem to deter the criminal. Number one, from getting the guns, and number two, from using them. We probably need to look to see what it is that you know. What do we do different? Right. Do we punish them more? Right. We do know this. 
we can restrict the guns all we want to, but it's not going to stop the bad element from receiving the guns, right? And even if we took all the guns from, from the U.S., I was looking at statistics uh, about two weeks ago. We just started talking about weapons. The last three years in the West, we're so talking about us in Europe, like 140 people have been killed by vehicle attacks, specifically ideological threats, right, you know, to acts of terrorism. So, um, so now what? We're going to take vehicles from people? If you start to look at the crime rate in places like Europe where they do take guns in parts of Europe, you're going to see that other weapons are used to kill people, anywhere from machetes to hammers to – so it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the weapon, right? It's not whatever it is. It's the person, and that's what we have to think about. What do we do with those people, right? So – and I don't I – don't, you know, today we don't have the answer for that, but whatever is we're doing in these big cities where we are restricting – Obviously, restricting the the ownership of guns and our ability to carry firearms that's that's not working. The criminals are still going to get them. Uh, Christians are divided on this issue. Um, there are those who will say um, we have <clears throat> don't have the right to kill a person. There are those who would say um, I, I had a post on my Facebook that I put up uh, was I thought a well reasoned article. Didn't agree with everything. But I put it up, and uh, one respondent said, "I'd rather trust God than a gun." Yeah, and and my thought was, well, do you wear a seatbelt? Do you drive fifty-five or sixty or seventy? Where the limit is? Do you use your turn signal? Do you look both ways where you change lanes? Uh, do you expect the airbag to deploy if you have a wreck? You know, but for some reason, when it comes to a gun, we we have a different. Yeah, help me, help me out. Yeah, I think, or more important, which is going to hit home to everybody: Do you take statin drugs? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you're dependent, so uh, you take statin medication. So I, I think, uh, so you know, for believers, and again, you know, I, I think, uh, well, first of all, th- this part about killing is, is someone who's uh, been involved in conflict before. Uh, so even at the time as a young guy, when I did that, when it had to be involved in that, even at the time when it was, it met my rules of engagement. I was there with another teammate. Uh, very specifically, we were there to defend uh, uh, other people. Um, I, we did not want to do that. So it's a very unnatural thing, which it's supposed to be for human beings, to, to whether it's to pull a trigger or pull out a knife and, and stab somebody. So it's something that the majority of us don't want to do. In fact, the people that do want to do it, there's probably something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it goes against our nature, the way we're designed. And so, um, first of all, people don't want to do it. Right. And so I think especially with when the gun debate comes up and, and, you know, this is not all Christians, I think. But as Christians, we're in the world and we have a we have a tendency to pay attention to what's around us. Right. Because we kind of lose sight. We all do all the time of really what we're supposed to be here for. And so because of that, we really lose touch and we listen to what other people say and we start to think, well, maybe that's not what we need to do on the topic of self-defense and not to kill. So there's a difference between killing for the reason just to kill and the intent of killing to or the use of self-defense to defend yourself or someone else. There's a difference between the two. I'm not talking about killing, but just because you want to of an innocent person, we're talking about self-defense. We're talking about if you or your loved ones or somebody that you cared about are under the law, like 3911-612, innocent people or third parties in a movie theater, you're put in a situation where you have a weapon or a firearm, you have the ability to defend somebody else because they're under the threat of death or serious bodily injury. There's a di- Number one, there's a difference between the two, right? Two, God sees a difference between the two. We go all the way back to the book of Exodus. It was very specific as Moses was you know, taking the Israelites out of Egypt. Very specifically in Exodus, it says, hey, if someone, if a thief comes into your household at nighttime and tries to harm you or your family, you have the right to defend yourself. 
Jesus, I ask the question, I ask this question to Christians all the time that don't agree with this. If this, if, if God did not agree with self-defense, and again, we have to see the difference between the two, killing and self-defense, right? If, if God doesn't believe in self-preservation, doesn't want us to defend ourselves, right? At the Garden of Gethsemane, why did Peter have a sword? If, if the disciples were walking around with the living God, why did they have swords, right? Because even Jesus said in the book of Luke, he specifically says, if you do not have a sword, sell your cloak, right? And so because God understands of, of what happens, you know, while we're here, I believe, and this is, goes to self-defense, he does want us to be happy while we're here. As unhappy as we are, no matter what happens, and as bad as things are down here, the short time that we are down here, self-preservation is something that is a God-given right, going back to the Second Amendment, the beliefs of our founders. The, again, that's something I believe that God wants for us, and there's a difference between killing someone, right, just to kill, which is evil, and then the, and then self-defense. Well, and, and we've talked about this many times before, the government is there for our good, even though they're a fallen entity. And whether you read uh, Romans 13 or 1 Timothy 2, um, we are under the authority of government. If government allows you and me and other citizens to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves, if the Second Amendment allows us to bear arms, then we're not acting outside the government that God has established, even in a communist country. even in other, there, There's a governmental system there, but you still can't operate within without breaking the law and still defending your family. Yep. You know, it's it sort of, it's it becomes academic, but uh, my uh, our worst case scenario, uh, you have a daughter, I have three daughters, is to think about someone coming into your house and uh, harming your daughters. Would you stand there and say, "I'm trusting God to take care of my daughters"? I mean, you know, you, you do everything within you, as as poorly trained as you are, to try to stop them from uh, abusing your wife or your daughters. You'd do anything. Or it'd be unconscionable as a human being to say, I'm not going to defend the life of an innocent child, and I have the possibility of stopping or slowing down the threat or neutralizing the threat. Why wouldn't I? Absolutely. Um, when you think about our future as, as, uh, as believers in the country, and you work with nonprofits, you work with profit organizations, um, give us uh, three, four, five common sense ways to think about these things, to talk about these things without getting all, you know, up in arms, no pun intended. Yep. So the first step is prevention, right? The most important thing, you know, I heard this many, many years ago as I started my executive protection training. Um, it's not about the gun, right? It's about the advance. And what that really means is it's about the measures you take, you put in place to see a threat before, before it becomes a threat. And so situational awareness is much more powerful than the gun. And so any organization out there that listens, whether you're a school, a church, whatever, and a sensible way to talk about this is, number one, from a physical security standpoint, what's the problem? Who is the threat, right? Understand the characteristics of that threat and start to very calmly talk about what are ways we prevent this. Right now, everybody is concerned with the response. The left's response is to take guns. The far right's response is to arm everybody up, Right. But everybody's worried about a response. No one's talking about prevention. Now, taking the guns doesn't prevent anything. Arming more people up is not going to prevent anything. Let's talk about how we detect the problem, how we deter the problem, and how we're able to report that and see it before it becomes a problem. You know, you heard me say this. we got to see it in the parking lot first, right? We want to keep it out in the parking lot. And so um, 
So again, it's about understanding what the threat is and what the problem is, understanding the characteristics of that problem. Like when we just talked about these statistics with school shooters, we know who the problems are. We know statistically who it's going to be, and we know that there's communication before. So let's talk about it from that standpoint first before we start talking about all this other stuff. So understanding what the problem is, and then let's talk about prevention. And we all know statistically whether we put more armed people in the schools or the whatever, or whether we take guns, I, I can tell you from a phys, you know from my experience in physical protection, that doesn't prevent anything. And so we're so worried right now about responding to this. How do we get the police there faster? How can we get the teachers to fight? And how can we, you know, how is it that we can eliminate all this and take everybody's guns? None of that's going to work. It has to be about prevention. And that is understanding what the problem is, looking at what the problem is, and understanding what it looks like before it becomes a problem and dealing with it then to prevent it. Specifically, is it too easy to acquire a firearm? I don't think so. Oh, if, if you're a criminal, sure. If, if, as a criminal, I probably know where to go get a, a, a weapon or a firearm, and no one's, no one's probably going to know. As a law-abiding citizen, here, you know this. Here's what I have to do. If I want a new, a new Kimber 1911 right now, I can get up, leave here, drive to a gun store in Franklin, and I'm going to wait about 15, depending on, depending on how lucky I am, right, depending on what the system looks like, I can wait anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes before I can spend my hard-earned money. And again, as a, as a Marine Corps veteran, a law enforcement veteran, somebody filling that's out a lot of schedule, forms, filling out yeah. a lot of paperwork, waiting on waiting. a background check, and then paying for that weapon. So why do we hear the argument that we need to beef up background checks? Um, I think there's a misunderstanding about uh, what actually happens when you go into a gun store to buy a gun. Yes, there are people or weapons available, people that don't want to buy them and don't want to go through the legal process. Yes, yes, there are. Just like people without a driver's license can get in a car and drive. All right. So, yes, there is a way for people to do that. But I think people must understand Really, for you to legally buy a gun, there is a process. There is a background investigation. Um, could they be faster? Could they be better? P- probably. Um, but is is something not in place? No, that's not true. I just can't go get. I just can't go walk into a store or go to a gun store and buy a gun and leave, and nobody knows it. I can't do that. The so-called loophole uh, selling it in the. In the parking lot, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if I go to a gun show tomorrow. What regulation could stop that, though? Yeah, nothing. So if I go to a gun show tomorrow, I'm still going to have to go through a process to buy the gun. Right. Right. Now, could there be a guy in the parking lot at the fairgrounds out of his trunk selling cars or selling guns? Obviously, yes, that can happen. There's not anything that you or I, the government's going to be able to do to stop that. Can't take them all away. Can't take them all away. Even if you wanted to today, you can't. And that's not the answer anyway. And again... If you're an American and you understand the history of this country and you believe in our Constitution and you truly believe uh, what our founders believed and you, you enjoy and you love where we are today, you wouldn't want to take anybody's guns. Whether you're on the left, in the middle, wherever, you wouldn't want to do that because that's our right. Self-preservation is a God-given right. It's a, it's a right given to us by our country that was given to us by our forefathers. And if you don't believe me, whoever listens to this, go back and research it. Go back and read the history from the 1760s all the way to, to current day. And the Supreme Court's upheld this. They started doing this in 2008. For, I think it was the first time there was some, some very um, detailed legislation on what the Second Amendment means and what it means for gun ownership and for people to have it, legal people, you know, legal uh, law-abiding citizens to legally own firearms. 
Michael Mann, thank you for your time, your your study, and uh, your friendship. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. In my conversations with Christians, it's interesting the bell curve of opinion on whether or not a Christian should bear arms, should have a concealed permit, uh, should get rid of all their guns to be nonviolent, to turn the other cheek, and all kinds of different iterations. Love your enemy, uh, you can't murder, uh, so forth and so on. So let me begin with a, and I'm going to use this in pencil, a theology of defense, because I think it needs improvement but I think it's a good baseline to help you and me think through why we would ever defend a life, why we'd ever defend anyone. Uh, number one, when Adam fell, he fell far. If we look at the expulsion of the garden, when Adam and Eve chose to uh, disobey the one prohibition, Cain and Abel are born within a very short order, the first murder occurs. Cain murders his brother. During that period, Cain's cursed. Cain complains to God, and he says, This punishment is too great for me. God's words were, You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And so he complains to God, and God says to him, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. We don't know what the sign is. The point is, God marked him in such a way that if you lift a hand against Cain, the punishment's going to be great to you and your family. Cain has a a fifth son named Lamech. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Scripture records Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So from Cain to his fifth son, hubris has taken on new heights. By Genesis chapter 6, we have a phrase, only evil all the time. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. He was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, not to go too far off into what is the language here, but what God is telling uh, us in this chapter is that he's going to flood the earth. He's going to destroy the earth and start over. There was a time when evil was so pronounced that God executed justice. He brought in a judgment because of only evil continually pervaded. From the sin of Cain killing Abel to Lamech's 77-fold threat to only evil all the time was not a long period of time. By the New Testament, we have phrases like turn the other cheek. Matthew 5, 38 and following. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what's called talionic justice. You poke out my eye, I can poke out your eye. You poke out my, you break my tooth, I can break your tooth. Lex talionis, uh, punishment that fit the crime. But Jesus says, but I say to you, Do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn the other to him also. If he wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat, and so on. So Jesus seems to turn this on its head. Uh, the so-called talionic justice, retaliation equal to the suffering, was a differentiation between governing officials and an individual getting even or bringing vengeance. This and other insults that Christ mentions, take your shirt, forces you to go to miles, so forth and so on, is not an acquiescence to violence or personal harm. Let me say it again. It's not an acquiescence to violence or personal harm. The word slap was the idea of slapping with an open hand was more of a personal insult than someone punching you in the face. In other words, when insulted, you do not have to insult back. Let's go backwards and think about rescue and defense. From the time of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 14, this is post-flood. This is, this is God choosing Abraham in order to be a blessing to the world. Uh, there are many times that people fled or escaped danger. Uh, Abraham's going to go down and rescue his, his relative and all of his children in Genesis 14. Uh, David, we're going to see in 1 Samuel, is going to flee from the hand of Saul. Paul is going to flee when people try to kill him, recorded in 2 Corinthians. He's listed this incredible host of sufferings and beatings that he endured. He's let down uh, in a basket through a window. There was a time when Jesus slipped away from his home synagogue when they were trying to throw him off a cliff in Luke chapter 4. Jesus hid from being stoned in John chapter 8. Jesus eluded their grasp in John chapter 10. What are we saying here? There is a time to run away. There's a time to escape. Many times people were prepared to defend, but perhaps they didn't execute that. David, while fleeing, essentially assembles a group of a security team. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, you'll remember the chapter of Doeg the Edomite, who kills 85 priests with a sword, including men, women, children, even infants in that record. Throughout the book of Judges, it's not, if, if not the darkest time of Israel's history, the judge was to lead men into fighting to possess the land God had given them. To remember, in the Old Testament, when God commanded his people to wipe out a people group, we can't help but wince in horror. I mean, after all, is this genocide? We can't completely understand the mind of God, but I would, I would propose the idea here, propose the theory here, that when these enemies hated God's people, they also hated Yahweh. They would not only have worked against Yahweh, they would have destroyed Yahweh's people. And I think the God of heaven understood if these other groups who hate Yahweh, who hate Yahweh's people, are not addressed, it will not merely be an irritation to Israel. It'll pull them into idolatry and to pull them away from Yahweh. It was the sovereign mind of God when he on occasion instructed them to take the land and to destroy the inhabitants who hated Yahweh and hated Yahweh's people. By Luke chapter 22, back to our New Testament, the Lord said, he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both prison and death. He, Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times. 
And he said to him, When I sent you out without money bag, without a belt, and out sandals, did you lack? They said, No, nothing. He said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this is written to be fulfilled. He was numbered with transgressors. And for that which refers to me, it is fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, there are two swords. He said, it is enough. And they came out and proceeded as was the custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also with him. In Luke chapter 9 and 10, Jesus told them to take nothing and rather to depend on me. But by Luke 20, he says to be armed. Can we conclude this with safety? Good measure? Was it some sort of allegory or metaphor Jesus was meaning? We may not subscribe to ever using a weapon as a deterrent, but in a hand-to-hand combat situation, I would argue that in a sense, a sword on your hip could discourage would-be robbers or would-be criminals. Being unprotected completely leaves that person vulnerable. After all, we lock our doors on our house Many of us have security systems. Many of us park our cars under a light in the parking lot when we go into some environment. We're being wise. We're being deterrent. Uh, But if something bad happened, I'd rather have a can of mace or some other uh, protectant just in case, and it may well be a deterrent. Well, let's think about obeying the laws of men. We are to be obedient citizens in a government. In Romans 13 in particular, there's an important treatise on obeying those in authority. Now, currently, the laws of our country allow people, individual citizens, the right to bear arms. Back to our Second Amendment. According to Paul, we live under a government, and if we have good behavior, he says we have no fear of government. So to the question on whether or not we're committing murder, can I argue that if you are a lawfully abiding citizen, if you have gone through the proper channels to obtain training, firearms, uh, you have insurance in your home, all the things you need to do to defend those under your roof as well as to defend other victims, would you stand by and watch other people be wounded, hurt, murdered, raped, or would you do something? If the government that we live under gives us the right to bear arms, Is there ever a time, by definition, that you could defend and protect others with your right to bear arms? Murder, by definition, includes premeditation. It includes the intention of killing a person. It is involved in killing a person while committing any other felony, crime, whether it's terrorism, murder, rape, uh, adult or child, robbery, burglary, theft, Any of those categories in our country, generally speaking, state to state, is a predefinition of where you can defend yourself. Murder is defined as a crime of unlawfully and unjustifiably killing another person. A crime committed knowingly and recklessly with extreme indifference to human life. So protecting an innocent person, protecting my family, protecting my property even, is not reckless. It's not knowingly, recklessly, with indifference to human life. So again, under the umbrella of Romans 13, I would argue we have the right 
because our government allows us under the Second Amendment to defend, to protect our loved ones and those who would be victims. Another element of this theology of defense, I would call it, is shepherding God's flock. It's striking, and you may want to see both the metaphorical and literal side of this. I've never taught a message on Ezekiel 34, but if you read Ezekiel 34, even a cursory reading of that chapter is chilling because God rebukes his shepherds for feeding themselves but ignoring the flock. The flock was scattered. He holds the shepherds accountable for not doing their job. Ezekiel doesn't mention a rod and staff. They were arguably offensive and defensive weapons in the Old Testament, and he is excoriating them for taking care of themselves but not protecting those who are most vulnerable. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we read, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves, listen carefully, will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among even your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. Let me argue that the primary focus of the shepherd was to be on guard, to care, to be concerned, to be devoted Why? Because the enemy, in these words, Paul writing, will not spare the flock. This this refers to God's flock. He didn't spare his own son, but he delivers them over to to die for us in our place, not sparing his life. Interesting, in the extra-biblical epistle to Barnabas, the, the term was used with life or death in mind. But he himself desired to suffer in this manner. For it was necessary for him to suffer on a tree. For the one who prophesies says concerning him, Spare my soul from the sword and pierce my flesh with nails for bands. Of course, that is not biblical, but it's illustrating the use of the language. Spare my soul from the sword. So to me, shepherding again is a big metaphor. Finally, shepherding is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. John 10 11 and following, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own known me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is not an endorsement of self-defense or concealed carry, obviously. But I think it's a fair application that if you train, if you invest, if you are careful, if you believe, I could watch over God's flock. It would be a good thing to shepherd these innocent and sometimes careless people. Is there not a clear sense that if you or I were to run down a hallway 
uh, into a school, into a, a Christian, uh, a Christian a church ministry that had, let's say, hundreds of children in a learning center on a Sunday morning, and some evil person is coming in with a melee and killing these uh, parents, men, women, children, would you stand by and not shepherd that flock? I shared earlier, but I remind you long ago, I took a course by a Williamson County Sheriff's Department, and one of the most striking events was when the district attorney came in and he asked us the question, essentially by show of hands, how many of you would be willing to take a life to protect yourself or another person from harm? If you can't raise your hand, I understand. There was a pregnant pause in the classroom. After a few uncomfortable moments, he said to this class, if you didn't raise your hand, why are you in this class? He took a particular interest in telling us as citizens of the state of Tennessee he was glad we were taking the class. He even said, I wish every responsible citizen in Williamson County would take this class and learn what it means to choose whether or not you want to have a firearm in your home. If you have one, you better know how to use it. It's a perishable skill. You better know how, you better train with it. You better have someone who's far smarter in these technologies to teach you. At the end of the day, we don't want to pull a gun and kill anybody. It is the last last, last choice we ever want to make. But I do think we want to shepherd the sheep. I do think we want to care for those who are innocent. I do think it's our responsibility as men and women of faith to say, I'm not going to let an evil person come in and rape, abuse, kill, harm, uh, put a knife to someone and stand there and do nothing and think it's okay. Uh, to me, there's a point where you step up and you say, I will go, I will stop, I will try, I'll do my best to stop a felony, I'll do my best to stop an innocent victim from being wounded. Here's the reality of it. In the state of Tennessee, if a person does this by the book, everything's done well. This DA informed us it might cost us two to three years of legal hassle and north of $300,000 in fees. Is that worth Stopping a person from being raped, stopping a person from being killed, stopping a person from taking a, a pistol or a gun or an AR or a rifle and killing children in a hallway? What's it worth to try to save a life? This is Michael Easley in Contact. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.